I'm Abhishek Shah and you're listening to a podcast by the Economic and Political Weekly. We recently organized an event to understand the impact of data and algorithm-driven approaches to our sense of self and our relationship with the state and the economy. Our event, Data Societies, was a day-long panel discussion held in February 2020. We partnered with the School of Media and Cultural Studies at Tata Institute of Social Sciences in Mumbai. With the event, our goal was to examine the transformations and shifts brought out by the increasing role of data in our lives. Our first panel focused on the relationship between data and the self. And if you haven't heard it already, log on to epw.in/engage. Given that the state has immense and wide-ranging access to our data, ranging from biometric identifiers to demographic information, it was doubly important to take stock of the state's role in data-related transformations. Our next set of speakers did just that. On this panel, we had Asim Khan, who teaches on questions of digital politics and society at IIT Delhi, Sakina Dorajiwala, who is with Liberation Technology, where she focuses on technology for transparency and accountability. Shrinivas Kodali, an independent researcher who focuses on data governance and the internet, and Vidya Subramanian, who is a postdoctoral fellow at IIT Bombay, where she focuses on policies and technology. So the way I've, we've sort of structuring this panel is that I'll give a very quick brief introduction, and then we will have uh, opening uh, statements from Shrinivas, then Sakina, and then Asim. And then we'll have a discussion uh, for a few, for about 25 minutes, and then open it up to the audience for questions. Um, Nimi ended the last session with the words, "We'll figure it out," and she's, I think, far more optimistic than I am. But uh, there are more optimistic people on the panel, I hope, who believe that we'll figure it out. Uh, it reminded me of something that Shoshana Zuboff writes in her introduction to surveillance capitalism, where she says, "This is a new beast." something that we don't we don't know what it is and describes the way that people who first saw motor cars describe them as horseless carriages she says that it was a wholly inadequate explanation that came from something that they knew but it was not enough to describe the way that the what describe what the motor car was and she writes that the unprecedented is necessarily unrecognizable and uh, following from that, I do believe that what we are facing now is something that is unprecedented. The way that the state deals with data, what does it mean? To, what does it mean for the state to have data? What does it mean for data to have a state controlling it? These are all important questions. And without further ado, I ask Srinivas to begin the session. So there's an interesting presentation and work by Nimi on the story of Amiripate. And uh, the relevance for it is important in the context of the rise of Indian IT. Uh, why do we need to discuss a sector in particular when we're talking about data in the state? It's because how is this sector enabling the state, right? It's, it's not just the state which is carrying out it. It's not a lone exercise. There are multiple players and the politics involved in why certain things are happening. So I'm going to be te telling the story of politics and history of technology in India, in India, essentially the history of information technology. It all begins with Y2K. I don't know how many of you actually are familiar with the Y2K problem, uh, but that was the rise of Indian IT, uh, because you needed a lot of people who could fix the Y2K bug. And what you see is that a lot of engineers are being skilled, like you skill uh, 
a daily laborer, mainly skilling him with welding and other daily activities, and you could send them abroad to earn money and get back. At some levels, that's what happened with the Indian IT, way early in the 90s when uh, the YTK Park happened. And the, and the relevance to it is that that helped the rise of Indian IT, and in turn, it helped the rise of e-governance in India. Because if you look at the rise of e-governance, it happens in early 2000s, post Y2K, when you suddenly realize the importance of computing systems. Y2K never affected us because not, none of our systems, none of governance systems in India were actually digitized. But it was a major problem for the US or the West. And which is why e-governance or the rise of e-governance goes back to Y2K. And you have the early 2000s, you bring in the National E-Governance Plan where you try to modernize governance in India and you see the importance of ICT in governance, which is really important. And if you look at the story of Andhra AP Online, uh, it's essentially the story of a state which is bankrupt, which used uh, IT to actually revolutionize, earn a lot of money, sort its masses out. It's, it's one of the rich states now in the South. But then again, it continues, right? Post the National Governance Plan, since 2008, you see the rise of data. Uh, this also happens when the global uh, economy was going through a slump, 2008 crisis of the Lehman Brothers crisis. And this is a time when Indian IT loses one of its major clients in the US. All clients go away. And so this is a story of capital and governance. And suddenly you see that the Indian ID is developing a lot of new systems for the Indian government and pushing the whole idea of data-driven governance. So it's capital pushing governance systems in India. And unlike the Y2K, where the Indian government never helped the IT sector, it just stayed away. We were in the license raj mostly, where we would regulate everything and anything. But during Y2K, what the smart thing that the government did is they did not intervene. They let the IT sector do whatever they want. Uh, but then they realized we need to flourish this sector. We need to help them grow more, which is where you see e-governance coming into play and then the data-driven governance coming into play. It isn't like that bureaucrats and government realized that we need to do it. It was told to them by the uh, IT sector that why don't you consider this? This will help improve your problems and solve some of our manner problems that the bureaucrat faces every day. As a population, we grew up, and the bureaucrats in the country really can't govern us. Now, it brings us to the question of why do we see a rise in huge databases? It's because of the capital interest and the IT sector's interest, where they want to use this data to build their data economy. And now we are at this phase of something called real-time governance. I don't know how many of you even heard of this term. Uh, but this is again something which has been championed in AP, Andhra Pradesh. It's, it's people who drive these most of the times. It's individuals, companies, and their own interests, personal interests, economic interests, political interests. So the idea of real-time governance is you'll be tracked before you're born, till your death. And the idea is when you turn 18, we know that you're turned 18, so we'll give you your vote ready. We know that when you're born, you need vaccines. So we're going to send someone to vaccinate you to your house. So it's a new predictive style of governance where the government saying that we know what you want, we'll take care of you. 
but it's it doesn't come from an angle where the government actually cares about you. It's it's more to do with the capital interest. It's not like suddenly the government actually cares about you. But that's one of the the story of the economic interest of data and governance in India. But if you look at the history of why databases or particular databases have rose up in the country, it has a lot to do with national security in itself. Uh, if you consider the whole issue of Aadhaar and National Population Register, it has a lot to do with the Bombay attacks and the Kargil War, when the whole idea of identifying everyone comes into place. Welfare just becomes added on to it, but that's not the primary concern, it's a secondary use, which was kind of attached to it. But it's again a form of governance. So what you're realizing now is that surveillance and governance, which are both uh, legitimate aims of the state. I'm not questioning that surveillance is bad, but it, at, until what point do you allow them to do this without regulations or without regulating the power that they have? So as uh, Supernatural Jabov says, what you're seeing right now with surveillance capitalism, which is like the private sector realized the importance of data and how they could use it to sell something to you. Like it's entire e-commerce, right? They want to sell you ads, they want to sell you products, the government also realized the power of data and in some parallels, if one has to draw parallels between uh, surveillance capitalism with the IT sector and what would be the equivalent between the government, you have real-time governance, which in its own way is a form of surveillance and the various interests that are driving this. I will end there, but I'm going to explain you more, but one could call it surveillance if it's the primary case, one could call it governance if that's the primary scenario. But these are dual use technologies and one can't ignore that they overlap. And one can't say if it's being used for welfare, it can only be used for welfare. It could also be used for surveillance. And that's the battle we're looking to in terms of who gets what when they have the access to huge big data. Thank you, Srinivas. I think that one of the the, the thought that that immediately triggers is the Dutch uh, court ruling from yesterday where uh, a uh, digital benefit detection fraud uh, ruling, I, I encourage you all to look it up, uh, has been uh, struck down on the basis of a violation of human rights, like you're saying, the idea that a child born, you know, when it needs vaccines, when you need, so this was something about detecting how, how often or how much uh, well, suppose people on welfare would not be able to pay their rents, etc., that sort of thing, and the court struck it down on, the, on, the, on, a, on a human rights law. Which brings me to the other question that was also raised in the previous panel, uh, which will bring us directly to Sakina's uh, presentation, uh, on the idea of inclusion, in, on who needs to be included in the like, data and privacy and all of these important questions. But we know that uh, a lot of this is about wanting to be included. That there is a sector of people who really want to be on your databases because that's the only way that they can have access to the tools, uh, to things that the government can provide. And I think Sakina will take us through the problems of technology in that. So um, I sort of agree with Srinivas that it's it's uh, there is an overlap, right, in the sense that you need some amount of data for provisioning of public services. And it's not that data was not connected before. Individual data was not connected before. So you, you needed to give up some kind of information to get a ration card. You need to, you need to tell them what, who, who are the members in your family, what their ages are, 
and things like that even before this kind of digitization of data has happened. What uh, in my view um, from the welfare perspective and this is coming more from the perspective of um, say the people who are beneficiaries of these welfare programs and not so much about provisioning through the government or governance or monitoring them. Um, but like you said about inclusion in welfare programs is that um, now what's happened is the primary difference is that a lot of the data that was uh, collected earlier was held locally. A lot of it now is being held centrally. Uh, earlier, even though the center collected statistics, there would be aggregate numbers, not so much about every individual's name, age, and things like that. What was collected was collected individually so that you can provide certain public services, um, you can target people to, uh, you know, sort of uh, ensure that they're not left out and things like that. Um, but I've just shift focus a little bit to uh, what happens when uh, these technologies fail or when there are er errors in data and what that means for the marginalized populations in this country. So while um, a lot of it, a lot of this data collection, uh, storing, uh, use and sort of then delivering the public service happens through different agencies. It's not it's one uh, computer operator or a common service center, a village level entrepreneur who's collecting some kind of data, putting it up online onto a computer. Mm -hmm. There's another agency that's actually controlling the data, designing this, there's a different agency that's designing the user interface. There's a different agency that's um, sort of uh, ensuring that, you know, how are we going to use this data? Where is it? Um, and then finally there is a different agency sort of delivering the public service. And even within delivery of public services, different agency kind of controlling, say, the payment system for a cash transfer, and a different agency that's actually disbursing the money at the last level. So there's a multiplicity of agencies uh, who are handling this data for different uses. And uh, typically uh, in welfare, what, what, what happened even earlier in administrative systems uh, is replicated in this new kind of data digitized governance systems is that because of weak accountability norms, the buck keeps getting passed on. But what is different now is that um, there's a lot more opacity and because of this, because of the technology and the technical terms and um, the sort of way in which uh, this is designed, is taking the state further away from the citizens. So earlier, if there was um, an administrative lapse, there's a lot that you can do on the ground to demand accountability. But now what's happening is that uh, you, you're, you're being told that I entered your, uh, your information in this uh, software and my job is done. I really don't know what to do beyond that. And sometimes they really don't know what to do beyond that at the grassroots level. So in that sense, what uh, this digital technology is doing is taking the state further away from people. Um, and that sort of brings me to my second point, where is what, what's changed is that now the onus of identifying where the, uh, where the block is, where the problem is, and even uh, to the extent of how to resolve it is on the aggrieved because there are so many agencies involved 
And I'll give you an example. Um, an activist friend uh, from Jharkhand, where, where I work, James Herange, had filed, uh, works with uh, NREGM workers who work uh, you know, as, as uh, unskilled labor there, and they're supposed to be paid a certain stipulated minimum wage. And when a lot of them were not being paid, he went on to the online system to check what's happened to their payments. And he found that they were rejected because of something called inactive Aadhaar. Now instinctively he said inactive Aadhaar, there must be a problem with Aadhaar. So he went to the bank, he went to the block, and no one seemed to kind of understand people were guessing uh, what's happening. So he filed an RTI with the UIDAI. The UIDAI said, uh, this is not in our jurisdiction, uh, we, we merely collect the, we merely issue the Aadhaar numbers. So why don't you write to MORD because this is a program implemented by MORD. MORD sent it, MORD said uh, this is a Jharkhand level problem, so they sent it to Rural Development Department Jharkhand, the RTI was forwarded. Uh, the Rural Development Department Jharkhand said uh, this is designed by uh, NIC and implemented by PFMS. Uh, I mean, these are all names that I'm throwing around, but it's irrelevant. The point is that uh, it was going from one agency to another, and finally, uh, RDD Jharkhand, Rural Development Department Jharkhand said, um, you know, it's not in our hands, you may consult the MORD if you want to take up this matter. And uh, about three or four months into it, uh, James and everybody else around there still didn't know what inactive Aadhaar is, and uh, a lot of payments of workers were still uh, pending because no one could figure out what the hell inactive Aadhaar meant. Um, so the onus here of really finding out what inactive Aadhaar meant and thereby taking some corrective measures uh, really fell upon the aggrieved. Um, and I think that's, that's a challenge that we need to discuss a little bit more. But one on the flip side of all this data collection, which a lot of us who work uh, directly say with citizens or organizations on the ground feel, is the transparency aspect. And that's a real miss missed opportunity. Because so much of information of people is being collected and it's not being given back. So there is barely any proactive disclosure of information uh, according to RTI, which, which should be there. Uh, the section four of RTI mentions that there should be proactive disclosure of information. So before James should have asked for what inactive Aadhaar meant, somebody should have already put it out there that there is this error message inactive Aadhaar and uh, what you need to do in order to resolve it. Um, so that's another aspect that I think uh, we need to think more critically about, that there is so much data behind the logins. At least uh, a beneficiary should have the information about their own entitlements and benefits. And uh, civil society should have information about what information the government sees behind their logins. It may not be particular uh, details of an individual, but what kind of information can you do you have access to? And that will kind of feed into demanding greater accountability. Um, I think I'll, I'll stop here and then we'll take it with the questions. The one thing that always fascinates me is this very Kafkaesque idea of a man just running from pillar to post because really finding out we still don't know what this inactive Aadhaar is and I was waiting for the climax and we finally figure out what this inactive Aadhaar really means. We obviously haven't got to that stage yet. Uh, Asim, you have more things to say about the state of the idea of data. Thank you um, uh, for uh, having uh, for inviting me here and it's really interesting to listen to 
speakers and I would just uh, you know play off some of the comments that have been made and then and build a small thesis around how do we think about um, data and state uh, more uh, conceptually if you like and more historically. Uh, so you know going back to the Kafka's example, I mean Kafka was writing in an age which was having some of those issues which were very relevant of that time. I think we are awaiting the Kafkas of our age and maybe we are Shinivas may I mean, know better, but there might be some, some writing coming out of us. Now, yeah, and Zubov's uh, you know, writing has been referred by all, so let me just very briefly break down actually what she's saying uh, from the kind of the big picture, big brother argument that is often attributed to her. Her argument actually, if you look into the book, is very favorable to a company called Apple. Uh, she is uh, she's kind of taking a view that there is a huge gap between Apple's approach to information capitalism, if you like, to let's say uh, Google and Facebook and many other companies that have bypassed or breached those essential safeguards that, uh, let's say, Steve Jobs never really uh, you know took for granted. So actually, she has a very granular approach to explaining that how surveillance capitalism differs from what she calls information capitalism. And I, I'll take off from there actually because while we are in this moment of debating, I think anxiously um, about data and state, we must take a step back and say, okay, so how have we come this far? I mean, unless we make this moment an unexceptional moment in history, we will not grasp it fully. So this is what I think when you, when you say that or uh, when Shujana Zuboff is saying that this is unprecedented, what is happening, she's talking about specifically surveillance capitalism, where she has a particular definition of it. But she says information capitalism is not unexceptional or unprecedented or something that is not even desirable. So I think these differences is something that can help us think us through what situation we are in India. This is the other problem I have if we just quote Zuboff straight uh, without getting into her context-specific, uh, if she was to be a Kafka, she's a Kafka in contemporary American context. I think we've got to refer back to our own historical uh, origins of our information, not our, but I don't know who I'm talking about our, but as a, let's say state. When I say state, I was given, let's talk on data state. States can exist at all levels. I mean, this currently is a community of people and we can choose to have a, a person representative where we rest the sovereignty of all of us to speak on our behalf, that's a state of this class or this classroom. As a nation, we have a state. So let's assume we are all referring to the state that sits you know, in a particular capital where they have been assigned a certain duty by us, the citizens, right? In that context, what are the key uh, elements of history that we must recall? I will highlight two. And these are referring to specifically <coughs> information capitalism in, in India. It's not a new thing. Data, of course, brings a digital element to it, but collection of information and pr private data, whatever, what have you, has gone back decades, if not centuries, right? So we are in a moment which is continuous with the past. Of course, there is disruption or whatever you like to call it, but let's track back where are the two key points which I will like to think about when I think of the state in India. Number one, state has always had this ability to dominate the society when it comes to ownership of information. This is not a given. You can have bargains where people decide and choose to have the bargain on their side and keep the state at the minimum. We have had always an approach where the state can collect much more. 
and this goes back sad to say to a time when we were not in charge of the state as people when we had a colonial rule the first census and there's a lot of very interesting archival work on the emergence of the paper trails and the very census has been conducted in the role of you know what now we very well know the kagaz dikhane wala phenomenon you know when people on the street recognize ki kagaz nahi dikhayenge they have the memory of being asked the kagaz patta for centuries now so there is a resonance to that you know echoes of that era and that continues to haunt even today the digital state you know we have built a mistrust among the people of why this data is collected in the first place those explanations were never offered because the data collection was not for the benefit if you like of a welfare program it was essentially a colonial project so that continues to haunt us i'll give a very specific example the indian federal structure which was to take hold after the constitutional revolution was to give each state its own kind of sovereign autonomy to deal with these questions that has not taken hold the center still holds enormous amount of you know uh, uh, mismatch between what it holds and what the states hold and why is that for example let's go to an information technology which relied on on technology before digital wireless telegraphy for the longest time wireless telegraphy in india was distributed networks right we go back to something you will understand better you know it was all you know hyderabad state would have its own system and kashmir would have its own at, at some point and specifically during the world war 2 india nationalized its wireless system everything was controlled and organized around one central licensing ministry and it gives even till today license to run any kind of networking platform in, in india i don't know how tiktoks getting away from it right now but that's a legal fact and that's something we have to reflect upon why is it so centralized the other thing i'll just flag up is that we also have developments post colonial period right and those are equally important and the particular moment i'd like to take us all back to is the previous emergence let's call it the previous emergence <laughs> and where we have a hard debates about particular ideological orientation of the state where citizens are considered you know their rights are in abeyance and that scenario again haunts when we refer to our information capitalism and thanks for reminding us all of the y2k history but i'll go back and say the origins of our it industry its political origins are yet to be fully understood why is it in bangalore why is it not closer to the power capital of india is something it tells us that some negotiations have happened where is the digital economy today geographically actually growing is it growing around delhi or is it growing further away from delhi that will tell you who has levers of control over this growth so i think once we start to map out geographically the span of digital data where are the data centers in india none of us know none of these sites are actually hosting this data in america facebook or google everyone builds now mirror sites which are much closer geographically to where you are surfing right so we don't have those maps we don't have an understanding of where the infrastructure is and we don't have an understanding of how the legal process actually should work in the first place talking about information capitalism and i haven't even begun to think about surveillance capitalism which is to rightly quote shishan azubo is unprecedented let's first figure out something more fundamental that do we know the framework to govern as you know as a state made by us the information capitalism of in this country and then approach the bigger problems that are you know just on the doorstep of surveillance capital and oh well you know
allow me to disagree a little bit on that. I think all the beasts have to be faced at once. We can't shelve surveillance capitalism for a minute while we figure out information capitalism. But I'm very glad you brought this 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 nuance out because it. And I have a bunch of questions that I want to throw open to all of us that we can discuss. One of them is this idea that the state definitely needs data. We've always had a state that collected data. NSSO, NCRB, these, this is data that is important. This is stuff that we have worked with, population census, crime, all of this is stuff that we need data about. The problem currently is of personal data, is of data or collecting data exhausts. And I pitch it to you, is it time for the state to start deleting personal data? If there is a fast tag that, that, that tags my car when I'm going through a, a, a toll, which now I have to because we must all pay our obeisance to the one man who's built our information capital society, so to speak. But then should the government then keep this data? Should they know who I am based on my fast tag and then all the attending exhaust that comes with it? Is it time to start? Deleting data is my first provo provocation. My second provocation is about the idea of of negotiate of negotiations and negotiating with a machine at the welfare level. When you talk to a POS machine, you cannot say please yar kal de dunga. You have to put in your finger there, and if the fingerprint doesn't work, uh, there used to be a time when you could negotiate with the street level bureaucrat. You could talk to this person and say, here's 10 bucks, come back tomorrow, or here's 1000 bucks, come back tomorrow. You can't do that to a machine. If you fail to authenticate your Aadhaar, your child does not get to go to school, you don't get the midday meal, you don't get your ration. You, that lovely little puzzle that has been made at the back of this schedule, basically, basically all of that. Uh, let's start with these two provocations. Uh, jump in, whoever wants to uh, go first. Just to intervene, we have 20 minutes. So we have 20 minutes. Got it. Panel discussion and also the Q&A. Uh, 20 minutes including the Q&A? Ah, okay. Right. I will keep that in mind. Maybe quick then. That is what I'm hearing no, which I like. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think I'll try to explain yes. what inactive other is. Ah, okay. <laughs> Hey, I know what it is. Oh, no, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, it's not you who does it on me. <laughs> no, sorry. Okay. Uh, but I'm sorry, I'm going to explain something differently altogether. I don't mean to. Yeah. This happens a lot. I don't, I don't mean to be mansplaining, but. Okay, I'll come to it. Sorry. <laughs> uh, okay, for the first question Does the state need to start editing data? Yes. And uh, does the law say so? Yes, because the whole Supreme Court judgment or not, there's an entire provision which allows one to go ask the UIDI to start deleting our other if you got your other made pre the other act of 2016 was formed. Right. Because if you look at the history of other other project began in 2009, it was started being issued in 2010, but until 2016, it was an age of experimentations. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that happened pre other Act of 2016 came in, data was shared with everyone, uh, the election commission wanted to link other with vote ID, there were experiments which are called Project Biometric Pool in Jharkhand or Chhattisgarh. There are a lot of experiments and these are all pilots. So whenever you want to implement a technology, everything starts with a pilot. There's obviously no law. I mean, if you look at the rise of facial recognition now, it's exactly that. Uh, you're seeing it happening in pockets. You don't see a national system anywhere. But then again, by, by the time there is a national system, 
the state has already captured our data. Right. Through, so that's through my, that's my, that, that's, that's exactly what I was, was asking. The idea that the state has already captured data, why are we not deleting it yet? I mean, feel free to sort of jump in, Sakina, but do you, do you have a provocation, provocation uh, answer to that provocation? See, I think it really depends from which standpoint you're looking at this, right? Uh. It will be different for you and uh, your data and fast tag and what you, but for, really if you go and ask somebody whose uh, livelihood depends on, uh, you know, being in that system, Precisely. Uh, then they probably won't have the same answer. Right. Uh, but, and also, uh, slightly differ with you, Srinivas, earlier what you said, you know, sort of proactively reaching out and saying that uh, you need this and you know I'm going to try to <coughs> definitely I'm not saying the state um, state is all for welfare but there are there are political uh, things that at play here so when um, you could use some amount of data to actually resolve some problems um, for instance maternal mortality what we were discussing a little bit earlier and and or for instance say that in Rajasthan what they did is they had data for, they have this Bhamasha card which is pre-Aadhaar which is like a family ID sort of a thing in Rajasthan and what they did is they could identify uh, which people were eligible for pensions and they automatically included a lot of names in pensions. From the perspective of some somebody who is a pensioner, that's, that's a lot easier for them to apply instead of going through that whole application process for pensions just to be included in that list and start getting that benefit. So it really depends on which standpoint you are at um, to understand. It's not. I don't think it's a blanket thing. That no, it uh, isn't. Absolutely not. And at no point am I suggesting a blanket thing. I'm saying data that does, that is not of that kind. The the I'm saying the NCR data or, or for people to be in a pension on pension list to the below poverty poverty line are vitally important things to have. And that is information that the government or the state. In, in in states and in the center was already doing pre this sort of digital yeah so but I'm talking about very specifically this digital exhaust of our everyday lives the I mean the Internet of Things things that are, that are collected without us even thinking about it uh, who was it who said that the only two private spaces remaining are the bedroom and uh, the bathroom and my brain I mean even the bedroom that Alexa like the bathroom and the brain are the only places where, where we're not collecting information although I'm not quite sure about that yet because no, predictive technologies no, are social in, in China they have Put something in my brain. Yeah. But uh, actually, uh, I go back to the previous panel. Made a fantastic point, I think, Smita, where you talked of a new language. You know, discussing, and you also mentioned that it differs from me to Shinivas to you know, somebody else. What is our politics of that will define what we think, and in a sense, that's the whole idea of the state. You know, we have our politics, and we create it. In a sense, we have a theory of democratic state, right? I think what we are currently lacking is uh, two points, and I won't go in the legal kind of framework. I'll just go about the point Smita made, which was we don't have the language. And when the word, like, say, you said, de deletion of the data, you know, it technically, what would it mean to actually delete the data today, which has been replicated a million times over? So if I delete it, the only people that will have it will be the private corporation, because they surely have a mirror of every data set that the state has. So, in a sense, is deletion a strategy or a tactic that we have thought through? I think we have to, that's why we think what, uh, as I said, Smita said, think about our language of politics. Do we have the words to grasp? I think this is another thing that Shujana Zubav, at least, even if you don't agree, has tried to do. She has given entirely new terms 
instrumentarian power it's a new idea of power which is not she says cannot be uh, you know there's no concept before to explain what happened <coughs> it's a realist capitalist i think in some ways can we think of the word like azadi yeah in today's time why is it come back do we have a clear conceptual understanding of what our politics has is about especially on the streets professor guru's call to understand what politics is we have to watch what is people saying about data what are they saying about surveillance on the street and bring that back i think this was the discussion in the first half that the self making itself is a political act and so constantly collecting you know not just legal discourse but people's views discourses on the street is important the second point i think we should avoid thinking about the state as a monolith then we should open it up it has been changing its very existence has has kind of transformed over time so what kind of state do we have i mean if it is a democratic state is not is that not desirable over an authoritarian state and if we are sliding that way how do we stall that process state is what we make of it if we if we can put it in those terms so, I, so I'll, i'll just step in for one quick second to say that the state is what we make of it is basically the point i'm also uh, trying to get at uh, from the sort of financial view which is that the we need the state not just to regulate what data is collected mm-hmm. but to regulate who has access to that data Absolutely. private co- corporations that are uh, that that only agree to say an american law or a chinese law uh, collecting data about indian citizens means something entirely different than say your nanda nilekani collecting data about indian citizens in many ways my question then or uh, uh, should we think through the idea that should the state then be the arbiter of all of its citizens data is the state the thing that we i mean i know you all with the microsoft institute say no don't trust the state obviously but who else what do you do what do, how do we regulate this space it's important to talk not just about the state but the private actors as sakina was saying uh, you have a lot of intermediaries right so you have can i see which is developing the software then you have uidi which is developing aadhar then you have an entire department which is supposed to be distributing welfare fertilizers based on that so what what you have done is you, so this is something that i have been saying around what aadhar has done to us is it has reduced us from citizens to consumers okay from the private sector point of view when you bring in the private sector when you're interacting with aadhar you don't interact with the state you interact with the machine which is owned by a private sector which is implementing it uh, i mean it could be an ic but operates as a private sector entity in itself yes. because uh, every step is mediated by a private yes. company there are yes. private vendors that have to and and when you talk of building stacks mm-hmm. when you talk of building india stack which should have upi aadhar all of these form a stack what is it even mean mm-hmm. if you go as the people who are building it they don't know Okay. They don't know. Okay, is it a platform? They don't want to call it a platform. Uh, then do you say is it what do they call a what is? It's a set of open APIs. That's it. But APIs to do what? To automate governance. Their idea of India Star is that's another interesting term, right? Automating governance. Do we? the whole the, the democratic project was to deautomate governance was it in many ways the idea of democracy is to take that automatic delivery of power from one monarch to another or one uh, you know one head of state to another to change that into making it something messier definitely but far more representative so this 
is this is this a problem and how does one deal with it with this idea of automate where all of our data and all of our predictive technologies are trying to to push us in a direction where we don't have to think about our next step um not so much directly to to this automation point but i just go back a little bit to your earlier question and try to concretize um, you know uh, this mediation of technology and the, the citizen and the state and its, me, its interaction mediated by technology so what you were talking about and alluding to earlier is this ration you know uh, having going to a ration shop and authenticating with a post machine i think it's it's the street level bureaucrats also have a way of um, sort of operating around these things so mm -hmm. they are very important players in in these kind of mediations too um for example uh, you know in jharkhand it is very common that uh, the post machine doesn't work in a certain area so they take uh, take all the people to a particular place or a terrace or even sometimes a tree top and authenticate them there and then bring it back so in that sense um there's a very uh, very interesting way in which this mediation is also happening through the bureaucracy at the same time technology but um, what we often say uh, you know is this over reliance of technology that becomes a problem in this case and a very very simple example that uh, some someone in jharkhand keeps giving is that when you started the online system for train ticket booking in jharkhand in india you also had the offline counters where you could line up and and take the tickets and it still exists and so that option is always available for people and so if you don't put all your eggs in the technology basket but you also have just enough number of options for people then you probably um, you know which is a great point you're making about which which also uh, is was the, was in some ways the the basis on which aadhaar was introduced right that it was going to be voluntary that you didn't have to have an aadhaar that it would be voluntary i think shrinivas wants to explain the the, the technicality of this post machine authentication just adding to what sakina says and not going to contradict not yes not going to contradict in any way but trying to explain what actually happens Uh, how many of you here actually know how the internet works? Do you know what the DNS is? <coughs> Do you know how many servers or systems a request or your data goes through before you actually get a response? No, 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 no. We know, we actually know we actually know a lot about it because it's actually transparent. It's standardized. I'm not trying to say that we don't know. Uh, but we don't know a lot about what happens in our in case of the internet it's actually transparent because it's w3c which actually standardizes this so you have a system you know there are these servers there are uh, uh, tools in which you where you can query and you know where your query is stopping that you know that it's at bsnl where your request has stopped so you know where the error is in case of other Other, I mean, if you look at the internet, I think there are a few series of codes. You usually have the 400 codes. So when you see a 404 on your browser, which is a file not found, that's an error code. This is a standardized error code. There are around 20 of them, probably. There's series one, series two, series three, series four, and series five. Each having four or five, so it's roughly around 20. Other has 100 error codes. 100. Okay, that's other error. Now to bring in the post machine, the post machine has hundred error codes. Then you you bring in multiple layers. Then you have the National Payment Corporation of India, which is sending these payments <coughs> to 
different bank accounts through Core Bank, which is a software which Finical, Infosys, and uh, several DCS companies built. They have their own error codes. <coughs> On top of it, the DBT mission has 100 error codes for DBT. So you have 500 error codes in various many-to-many -many mapping. Right. Okay, if you even look at the permutations of it, you will never be able to identify where the error is. And that's in this complex matrix, which is actually a matrix. Large, very large yes. Somewhere. In this complex matrix, if you are trying to go find where the inactive order is, you will never find it. Because you no one entity owns the infrastructure, no one entity is sharing the information between infrastructures, and the infrastructure that you are being built where you call it, it's being decentralized, it's blinded, it's being designed in such a way that surveillance doesn't happen. There's also those disadvantages when you say we will localize data. It yes. just complicates yes. it. I get what you're saying. But which then brings, brings me to the idea of surveillance, of the state and surveillance, which, we, which is not something we've discussed much and I don't know why we have five minutes. Uh, but I just want to bring in this idea of the all-seeing eye. This We've always been looked at. I mean, the government has always been seeing. And as Arjun pointed out, it is, this is, none of this is new. None, this is not. This is not the unprecedented zoomerism. The surveillance is the new thing. The idea that we are moving from that sort of Foucauldian disciplinary society to the Deleuzian control the society of control. Does that is that is that the present moment? Is that how we can look at it? And is that how we should maybe approach trying to understand what this? Horseless carriage is. So yeah, I think I'll just briefly uh, touch upon something that's been coming across. Is that you know this dialogue is very important. Shrinivas knows these codes in the kind of language in which the infrastructure is being built, and money or many in social science would speak about the infrastructure of the state. I think this this kind of communication gap is often. I'm very interested in listening more and understanding a little better what you have just explained. So thanks for that. But yeah, I'll have to catch up. But I think that coming back to the question of surveillance capitalism, it's already here. We are we are in that moment where our what you know I would say we are living in a moment where our behaviors are already being shaped in a particular direction as against another form. Now this is this is not just in a very uh, kind of scary scenario. Uh, you know, it's it's again tied to an economic logic. Let's try and rein this down, not in a kind of a paranoid language. It is an effort to create a particular economic structure of surveillance aligned to a particular form of capitalism. So I think it's not like that we don't have a handle on how to deal with it. We have dealt with capitalism in the past and we have dealt with all isms in the past by creating counterisms. And I think like in the end you have to have an answer to this also which is political enough. So it's not about shutting down technology. In fact, one fine point that I would make as a in a theorist, uh, a theorist of the state, you know, one is the technology, which is a tool. It's always a means. And even Adar is eventually employing, applying biometrics in this realm. But behind it lies a conception of society. Behind it lies an economic logic, and that is where we are transforming from being, uh, you know, uh, you know, becoming. So you know the famous saying, which I think everyone is quoting that. You know, when you are when the when, when you're buying something, you're the consumer. When it's free, you're the product. So, in a sense, this is how many times you use the internet for free. And uh, I'm very glad that Faiz and I, the chapter we wrote about uh, in in, in is on free Wi-Fi, 
and we try to extrapolate from this idea that there is no free Wi-Fi, there is no free internet, there is no free service. Everywhere, I just want to jump in quickly. I'm yeah. just giving an example of something that yeah. happens in IIT. I don't know if sure. you know this. There is a cafe which gives you free coffee in IIT. Okay. We love it. It's I've not yet What's got any. The catch is that you would like their Facebook page. This is a this is run by a guy. I can't for the life of me remember their name right now because I'm telling you that I have Alzheimer's. But uh, the point is this: this cafe is run by these Japanese students. It's uh, what they do is they give you one free lassi, one free coffee every day. You can get this. All you need to do is like their Facebook page and download their app. So the Just moment you download their app, you get free coffee. Every absolutely, day. and it's not free in other terms except that there's no financial transaction. Exactly. And this is where the state has to come in. And this Because is the reality. We're all technology. Yeah, and yes, we have built our entire machine of the state to suit. The financial sort of economy, but surveillance capitalism will bypass that. It will go directly to making products out of our human behavior as the input for their capitalist machine. So I think the state must come to terms with the fact that there is a very big challenge instead of going down this kind of rabbit hole of actually identifying citizens and by using some kind of you know material artifact. We've got to change the uh, you know the economic logic through which we are trying to address these problems. So surveillance to answer your question is already here. The only way you can fight it is by knowing that it's a site aligned with capitalism. Unless you take it on politically, you will not have an answer to it. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I think we are. We we open the floor. Let me just. Uh, finish with one quick observation of the about the about this this whole identity process that an individual faces. The the more we use fingerprinting, the more we use facial recognition. What we are basically what the AI actually does with these large data sets is that it reduces you to a. It's not your identity that it's scanning. When it scans your fingerprint or your face, what it's doing is it's finding your the best statistical match to what it has in its database. So. Can your identity then, as, as the state looks at you, when the state looked at you in a pre-digital age, you had a, a ration card, whatever that identified you as an individual. But then are we now shifting towards a statistical match as identity? And I think this is a this is a problematic question that that needs to be addressed, that needs to be talked about far more than it is now. With that, I'll open the floor for questions. This has obviously been a fabulous panel. No one has any questions. <laughs> <laughs> so so we'll take three, four, so that we can take more questions. Sure. Yeah. Panelists have to remember questions. Uh, hi. So my name is Anand, and I'm from the School of Media and Studies, doing a PhD. It's so it was more of a statement and comment in the whole idea of state and data. So I was thinking that the from Zuckerberg's surveillance capitalism and the whole idea of surveillance state. And the scary part in the context of today's world is that a the idea of liberal democracy is failing because a the idea was that progressive by progressing towards a more uh, democratic value the state will become more transparent that is where RTI Act comes in the earlier the earlier version right and but now what is happening with the exhaust and the collection of so much data that the state is getting more opaque and also that the amendment to the RTI and the person that have the bill that is there. And the individual, which which was supposed to be again the idea of liberal democracy, that it will he or she will become more opaque. But now the individual is as transparent as possible because a the collection so much data, and the second pinpoint who or where the person is. So that was a nice statement. That's the yes, idea. I get what you're saying. Do we have another question? Yeah. 
Yeah, right. Can you get a mic to this side? <laughs> My name is Pratik. Um, just we always um, sort of refer to this idea of the surveillance state and the liberal state and so on. And of course, no denying that the state is out to surveil. But can we sort of nuance that a little bit? Like, what does the state do with so much data? Are there other ways of looking at it apart from the fact that the state is looking at all of us? Why is it looking at all of us? What are the ways of understanding the surveillance? Because policing, yes. Terrorism, so on and so forth, yes. But why else can this data be used in terms of the violence? Okay. Got it. Shall we take one more? Person who has the mic. Hi, um, my Sorry, name. Sorry, can I just, because one woman in that two men already spoke, like, yes. Hi, I'm Malvika. I work with EPW and I'm also a former student of this Mumbai. So, uh, while I was in this, in most of our classroom discussions and deliberations, uh, a frequent point that would come up uh, would be how the how those who are on the margins of the society need to assert that we are not merely data. So, if the panel could comment upon how the Savarna state treats those coming from the marginalized, marginalized communities merely as data. Let's take the fourth, <laughs> and then we. Oh, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Uh, no, no, I was just passing the mic around, I didn't know she Hi, my name is Abhishek, I use he, him pronouns and uh, my question was about uh, the uh, comment about multiple agencies um, and if there are government bodies that are more in tune with the interests of people. Um, so I uh, was recently working on an article where um, uh, about the Forest Rights Act, where the um, legislative department uh, had a more harsh interpretation of the law, but the uh, Ministry of Tribal Affairs was more um, uh, attuned with uh, the needs of uh, Adivasis in Himachal Pradesh. So I'm interested in knowing um, the kind of uh, gaps within the bureaucracies and if there are um, yeah, government bodies that are more attentive to uh, people's needs. Right, yes. Um, would any of you like to take any of them? I'll start with the question on surveillance state and metadata, uh, and how do you represent it? Like, how do you even explain it, right? So, when you're talking about building new language on discussing this, how do you even explain it to the common man? See, you have to politicize this at the end of the day because it's this politics involved. It just so happens that they're not your politics; they're the politics of the economic interest, of parties with economic interests. So, I think the essential to represent it is what material laws that you are going to have because of a surveillance state, right? It's simply that. Right now, if you're looking at the protests on NPR and CAA, uh, the material laws that people are understanding is that it, it can detain them, that their free movement is being restricted. That's one of the greatest challenges that they see it. And this is a narrative that no academic has built into, right? People who are attacking Aadhaar and NPR knew it for 10 years. But this is a narrative which came out from the people once they understood it. And I think those narratives cannot be set by the academia. The language will be built by people. What you can only tell them is you can translate it, not even simplify it. All you have to do is probably what is the state doing. And it has to be in the form of material. And there's so many things that one could say. And end of the day, it all comes to them 
you, you'll be detained or if there's health surveillance, if there is a health insurance company, your premiums go up. There are a bunch of these examples. Of <laughs> it's that, isn't it? But it's a little more than that about yes. what the state can do with our The question is not just what the state does with our data, but I think the danger is more of what can be done with with more than just data that the state absolutely needs. If you can identify sexual minorities, caste minorities, uh, uh, you know, people at risk, that and identify them specifically using banal data such as where I went shopping yesterday or what the what my supermarket list looked like. There's that famous case of the girl, the teenager who was pregnant in uh, Britain and the, the, the supermarket sends the home, whatever something, and the that's how the father finds out that his daughter's pregnant. He runs to the shop and the shop apologizes, says we were terribly sorry we sent you this horrible thing. I'm very sorry, I didn't know. And then of course it turns out the teenage girl is actually pregnant. Now these sort of predictive, imagine if the state knew this, the idea that the state would know when should to deliver your voter I card to you. This is a very dangerous, this is, this, is, this is the basic thing that the state needs to do. We need voter identity cards, but to say that I know when I should give it to you is the problem. And this is what the Dutch court ruling from yesterday that I was signaling at the, that I was referencing right in the beginning is about. The idea that this, this is a violation of human rights, of thinking about this in terms of human rights. I think that we, we don't yet know what the repercussions of that ruling will be, but it's, it's far greater than just this idea, right? Um, does anyone want to take the question of liberal democracy is failing? So, <laughs> so basically, um, I think I combine that with the, the you know, the, 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 the sovereign state imagination also of the state. I mean, the one thing that I, I, I've been trying to argue is that you, you can think of holding the state accountable to certain principles, certain, you know, public policy, uh, accountability laws, or even through practice of you know, questioning it. But in terms of once you privatize those those capacities, the you know, the way you've been explaining that how it's not just the fact that it's multiple agencies, some of them are not perhaps state agencies, right? So that is where the breach is happening. And this goes back to the kind of the theoretical question of why the state needs to be having all of this data. And this goes back to the very, you know, the ethos of collective decision making. How who's going to decide where who, you know, public authority rests. And in that way, I think like we haven't had heard enough about it from either the people building technologies or people making decisions on what is the role of the public in all of this discussion. So policy, for example, is now debated among a very narrow set of scholars or academics or lawyers and essentially, you know, even the data, you know, data legislation is essentially being debated in a very narrow circle. It has lost its kind of the you know vitality in the public arena, and we should not just wait for crises to let you know bring that up because that's inevitably what happens. Something gets leaked, and you suddenly are like, oh, Aadhaar is a problem. Why aren't we really doing that job well? And I think partly the reason is is us people like us have disengaged. I mean, the middle classes are least engaged in electoral processes today, with a pattern repeated around the world where they have seceded, you know, Anthony Roy has used the word secession of the elite. So they can build their own privacy safeguards and consent guidelines for their private individual self, but they don't care about the collective. Right. So I think the question that is, so that we have to constantly bring back when we talk about state and data, is what is the notion of collective today? And I'll be a little provocative in, let's say, borrow that idea that we, we can throw provocations. 
you know, it's not just the state that today is doing the surveillance. You know, the, 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 the real disturbing trend has been the vigilantism in, in communal politics in North India especially. You have, you know, groups trolling women who are speaking, uh, you know, out. There are minorities being hounded, not through some state apparatus, but through a, a kind of a mob mentality, which is also aided by the same technologies that we think can empower the self. So who is allowing this to happen is, is something we haven't really looked at. And this can't be off the hook. In fact, if you see the demands in some of the protests that are happening, it's like hold the state must hold the person accountable who is walking around with this vigilantist mob, right? So I think it's not, we are not hearing at least on the street a demand for state to secede or to recede. In fact, the, the state is being held accountable in a very dramatic fashion in the last few weeks than we have done in many, many years. In a sense, someone was saying yesterday, you know, by the end of UPA2, everyone was saying kind of like relaxed. You know, everyone is awake. Read the preamble, read the constitution, hold, you know, everything of state. So I am slightly on a different uh, plane from what you are saying that we have to be alert only about state owning this data. In fact, right now, my primary concern would be what is happening vis-a-vis -vis, you know, the, the digitalization of vigilantism. And there is no discussion around what should the state's role be and what kind of laws we need. Data protection, I think, is getting a far more attention for a particular economic interest. But where are the protection laws that can govern or stop vigilantism, use, use, use of digital? We haven't seen any debate on that. And that's what the public would perhaps want right now. Yeah, Sorry. Just adding to what Asim said. Uh, we never, I mean, across the entire panel, we're looking at the policy of state. But then again, with this centralization at a political level, the state and the political party are becoming the same at one level, right? If it's BJP is the state or Indra is India and all of that. So the data that's being collected in the government is being passed on to the political parties too. There's a huge political interest from political parties to know you. And when I say that other reduces to consumers, it's just in that our elections have been reduced to uh, a marketing affair, right? Mm -hmm. So data plays an important role there as well, and the political parties actually need all of this data to understand you electorally, yeah. and yeah. and look at the issue with the census itself. There are many exercises. Even if you look at welfare, welfare comes into politics, and which is where all the welfare data comes into politics and the state. At the same time, if you're looking at the geographic distribution, or why does the state wants to know so much about you? There's also political interest of that. I really want to know where someone is so that I can politically gain this process so that I am retained in power for the next 70 years. And how do you do that? You gerrymandered the constituencies in 2026 when the delimitation commission is set up, which needs to use the NPR data or the census data of 2021. Um, just to address the question about uh, people on the margins merely being understood as data. Um, so, it's, it happened before too. There was, uh, there, there was um, Savarna influence uh, greatly in say policy making or in welfare even before this kind of digitized data happened. It just made it easier and added a layer of difficulty for people now. And it's kind of made it easier to sort of, um, you know, have uh, people understood only as data. It's not, but but my contention is that it's not new. Um, people were right. were 
there was some other kind of statistic before. Um, so it's a the same principle. Uh, the challenge is different, and so the sort of manifestation would be different. But the same principle is that you know you know what Gandhi said about uh, looking at it from the lens of the most marginalized. So the same principle I would feel applies to even this visualized uh, so period. May I just add yeah. one more layer of complication to that? That it's not just the fact that the margins are looked at as data, but the fact that the margins are still invisible even as data. The problem that the, the margins who were not, those in the margins who were not part of our databases and statistics as a non-digital, to use the word loosely, state, are still the people who are invisible to absolutely, the state. Absolutely. They are trying to become data and feeling at it, which is which is on the other, which is the other end of the failure of the digital within, with, with the sort of idea that digitalizing is a better form of administration. Absolutely. Shall um, we take more questions? I, I just want to respond to um, the dif the different agencies. See, um, sometimes there is merit in uh, separating agencies, right? Like that, there there was some kind of merit in separating, say, an implementing agency from a payment agency. Um, the problem is not always. Um, separating an agency because an agency might have um, a specific task and an expert, uh, you know, uh, some expertise to to deliver, um, and some conflict of interest might be avoided also. So the it's not I wouldn't say it's it's one or the other is better. It's just that um, when there's no coordination between them, and when there's no uh, accountability for each one of them set in stone. Uh, as to how they are accountable ultimately to the people, that's when the problem comes in. Right, but that's also a pre-digital. That's also a pre-digital problem. It's, it's all getting transferred. Challenges would be different, and manifestations would be different. Right, right. Uh, more questions. Uh, we have some questions coming on Facebook. Right. Can you check? Yeah. So this is a question from uh, Neela P. Neelati, who is uh, following our proceedings live online. So, what are the protections that need to be integrated in the National <coughs> Data Protection Bill, which talks about that data shared with one agency for a specific purpose cannot be cross-shared with another agency for a different purpose? Shall we take more or should we? One at a time. Okay, great. Yes. So under the draft data protection bill, I think there are exemptions for the government under national security to do whatever they want. And the exemptions are not limited to national security, they extend to economic interests. For the purpose of AI development, the government can collect any data it wants. And the government can allow a economic party, so private business, to and share it, share the data with them, do whatever they want. I, I think this idea of taking my personal data and making their asset is deeply problematic and any exemptions for it, even for national security without defining it as a problem because the Supreme Court judgment on right to privacy actually demands that the government define what national security is, that the government can't do surveillance under these broad claims of national security without telling us what it is. I mean, would uh, an economic interest be a national security? Yes, but when they tell us who, what economic interests, whose economic interests? So uh, this uh, this is my question. Uh, this is directed at Srinivas. So in 2017-18, uh, there was this 
data theft issue in Andhra Pradesh. So I think 3.7 crore uh, people's data was compromised. So I just want to ask what purpose does it serve for the election commission to have the collated list of voters online? If you can access your own uh, voter details, that should be fine because we have seen election after election, you know, lot of uh, voter season, voters missing from the list. So this is something related to the previous question. A little background to what happened in Andhra Pradesh very quickly. What essentially happened was uh, when the government was building Aadhaar and the experiments that were happening pre-2016, uh, the election commission wanted to link Aadhaar with voter ID. There was a lot of data sharing. There was a lot of centralization of data. But end of it, all of this data ended up with a political party, which was in in power. So they tried using it for voter profiling and there were a lot of complaints of mass filings of Form 7s to delete voters or voterless. Essentially, what you can do is, I know that you won't be voting for me, but then I can remove, say, around 10% of voters, not everyone, 10% of voters who may not be voting for me and who are actually active voters, not of the middle class or not of the rich, but I know it's the poor people who will be voting. So I'll remove them. That way, I shift the scale of the elections. Right? So at some level, this is what was happening, and this is what every political party wants to do, and which is why none of them want to even question it. Everyone is like, oh, when I come into power, I want to do this. <coughs> and on the limited issue of election commission publishing a lot of this data, electoral roll data is a public data set. Okay? It's a public activity. <coughs> And this is where the issue of privacy and transparency comes in. The election commission is doing their best to ensure that the data doesn't go to or is misused. There are things that they could do. But the problem though is that they are not engaging with us or with the political parties on what to do. They are taking their decisions unilaterally, saying that this is for your own interest without explaining it to you why they are taking such decisions. And the best example is the regulations or self-regulation by social media companies on hate speech in elections. It was not EC's regulation, so there's no law for it. Thanks. Um, okay. Yes, okay. Can we take another? Quick. Yeah, uh, I'm Lugna, and I work with EPW. Um, uh, going back to the uh, question that we received online about the bill and coming back to what um, you were speaking about uh, the uh, who, who, who should regulate and own the data, uh, do we trust the state with it? Uh, the bill itself um, uh, uh, mentions the uh, Data Protection Authority of India. Uh, now to what extent would uh, an authority like that be able to make standards and um, regulate personal data uh, in the way that um, uh, what uh, Srinivas is talking about um, uh, uh, websites, you know, error codes and all are standardized. So you know uh, when uh, error code flashes in front of you, um, what error you're looking at and where do you go and fix it. So would a data protection authority that has been envisioned uh, in this bill, uh, which of course comes from the uh, uh, Shri Krishna white paper, uh, would it be able to do something like that? Um, this can I try and answer that quickly before I throw it up to the rest of them? I, my one contention with setting up yet another regulator is that a regulator is only as good as you let it be. 
we know this from the election commission, we know this from RBI, we know this from all of our independent institutions that an institution, a data protection, an institution just for data protection would be a fabulous idea if it had the independence and the, the teeth to do something with it. My fear of establishing another of these sort of semi-independent uh, bodies is that they will also become amenable to a to manipulation by those in power. We've seen that uh, the, that authorities can get uh, can get subverted in that manner. But does anyone have another? So I'll uh, I'll also echo this sentiment. I think that you know we have to think about you know regulation in itself is a particular form of state intervention. It comes from markets. The idea that you can only regulate, you can never govern. And I think this is the fundamental issue that's going to inevitably crop up. I completely agree because we haven't made it public enough. First of all, the dialogue is happening wherever it's happening. Even person like me will find it tough to even understand what is being said. Secondly, the publicness of it is, is, is like invisible to, to the majority. At a time when there is strong undercurrent of citizen activism, of as uh, Professor Guru reminded us of street level, you know, talk of constitutional values, we need to frame all of these questions in those terms. I'll just end with a small point that you can keep on having, as you're saying, technology oriented. IT laws, you know, it, you know, was made earlier, in like 22 decades ago. It was information technology laws. I mean, laws do not just should not adhere to or should aim to look at technology. What we perhaps need is our public commissions. We live in an age of mistruth and misinformation. There should be a public commission that talks about truth, the normative values on which state was given the contract to govern, are not being discussed at all. You know, the fact that truth, progress, what are those fundamental values on which we have given you the right to, okay, make laws, implement, execute, uh, all of those things. I don't think we have had a truth commission in a long time. In a crisis, we go back to protecting specific technology-related artifacts. I, I would say that they'll fall far short of what is needed at the moment. Thank you very much for being hope that you enjoyed listening to our podcast. We will be back with more very soon. Like and follow our Facebook, Twitter and Instagram pages for updates.